Our scripture reading is from Ruth 4, verses 11 to 22. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we have uh, the exciting conclusion, right, of uh, the book of Ruth. So we've been studying this together. Um, Not a super well-known story. Uh, It's a beautiful story. And actually, I I didn't mean, you know, even though we had a bunch of names there that are hard to read at the end, this is a really exciting conclusion to the story. You're going to see some threads come together um, today that have been building throughout the book. And it is just beautiful, God's Word. This is our normal practice to go through books of the Bible, and, uh, and we're finishing up this story. I'm a little sad, to be honest. It's been great to be in Ruth together, but we'll be, uh, have one week off and do something else next week, and then we'll start into our Advent series on heaven, which I'm really excited uh, to dive into as well. But before we look at this conclusion, uh, let's go to the Lord and ask His help in prayer. We thank you that in Jesus Christ you've spoken the world into existence, that you have found a people for yourself, Israel, whom you've set your love on, that you have developed that story throughout all history, that you have given us the true Israelite, Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way and whose life was a life we couldn't live and whose death atone for our sins, and we thank you for his ever-living, his ascension into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father where he pleads for us, even right this moment. We are in this story still, this unfolding story that you have told throughout your word and throughout history. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be swept up into it today, that we would see, we would not just see a dusty story, one that seems so far from our experience, but that we would see you have been at work and you are at work, that this story continues, that we have a place in it. And I pray, Father, by your Spirit, 
you would nourish us this morning with your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if, uh, if you've ever been to Rocky Point uh, in Mexico, Puerto Penasco, uh, great vacation spot. I've actually never been there on vacation, even though there's uh, beautiful condos and uh, beautiful beach there. But if you know anything about Rocky Point, you know that there's a contrast there. There's the, the beautiful beach and, and, and the wealthy area and the place where you can go and have a great beach vacation. And, and like most places where there is a beautiful beach, there's also an underbelly and there's a, there's a side to it that, that you may or may not have seen before. There's uh, quite a few cardboard villages where um, there are cardboard houses where people live and they've, they've put these houses together and they're uh, are slums where, where people live. And um, so there's a number of ministries that, that build houses in, in Mexico and specifically in Rocky Point. And about eight years ago, I went on a trip with a church group to build one of those houses, uh, probably about an 800 square foot house, the size of some, uh, some garages. Uh, it was a one bedroom, a one bath house. And the, the group that we went with um, had some very specific rules for how we were going to build this house. And I realized early on that we were not going to build the house uh, in the two, day, two or three days that we were there to build it. We were not going to build it in the quickest and most efficient way for a very specific reason. Number one, there were no power tools allowed. No power tools don't leave your drills at home, no nail guns, nothing like that. We're going to do everything. We're going to handsaw everything. We're going to nail in by hand every nail in the studs. Uh, this is going to be how we build the house. Why? Why would, why would we not build it in the most efficient way? Well, um, they had found through trial and error that, that when people come in from the outside, there's a discouragement that happens to the community to see all these power tools out, and then people are in and out in a day, and it's like it, they wanted to empower people to, to build their own houses. So that was one of the rules. Another one of the rules was that the family, no matter what their, uh, their ability was or their gifting was, the family who was going to live in the house also must help build the house. Uh, so they would have uh, kids of the house around, you know, uh, nailing in things. And, um, and of course, they wanted the family to work alongside. And the family that got the house was also a family that had to complete a certain number of hours working at other houses. And so there was a process for that. We were also slowed down at various times because this was to be a Christian house. This was a Christian ministry that we were with, and, and we took time to stop and to give them a Bible, and we took time also to bless the house. So when we put the studs up, um, we paused for a while to write prayers using Sharpies on the studs of the house, and that took a while, and you know, we lost an hour or two, lost, right? Because this is not the most efficient way to build a house. If our goal was only to build a house, we wouldn't have done those extra things, in other words. It mattered not just that a house was built, but it mattered how the house was built. You think about it, is efficiency 
always the best value. You think about that ministry. What if they could have just raised a bunch of money and, and then uh, sent a group of people with all kinds of tools and building equipment and built like 100 houses in two weeks or something like that? Would that have solved some of the issues? No, over time they realized that they needed to do certain things so that the houses that were built were built in a certain way. Efficiency wasn't the only Value. Now, I think about this. When I come to God's Word, you know, one of the questions that I've had over time, when I think about things that I don't fully understand about the Scriptures, one of the things that I have wrestled with is there just seems to be a lack of efficiency with what God's doing sometimes. I don't know if anybody has shared that. You know, it, it's kind of evident in the way that we're looking at this ancient book of Ruth, and we're, we're studying this, this old story, and we're, we're gleaning from this um, truths about who God is, and it seems like this happened a long time ago, and it seems like um, if, if God wanted us to know something, I mean, He's God, right? Why wouldn't He just zap us with the truth? Why would He deal with this whole sin thing? Why would He... Um, why would he tell this long story of redemption and, and give us all these things to, to mull over and, and, and worry about and, and try to analyze? And that seems so far from our culture. If God is God, why doesn't he just most efficiently build his kingdom? Maybe you've wondered the same. And I think while there can't be a full answer to that, the way that Ruth ends here helps me with that question. Because... What it shows me is that it's not just that God is building a house, it matters how he builds it. How he builds it matters because God is always building a house. In the Old Testament, this is called the house of Israel. Israel is pictured as the dwelling place of God, the house that God builds. In the New Testament, the language changes slightly, but it's the same reality. We're, we're called the household of God. Many of the churches met in houses. Uh, Jesus says that's not just true of the Old Testament, not just true of the New Testament. It's also true of heaven. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, um, he says. And so the end of time is pictured as, as the completion of a house. Read the book of Hebrews. It says there's this house that's being completed by Jesus, and God is the architect of the house. <coughs> a house is a people in a place. And it matters to God how he builds the house. <coughs> to our eyes, it is not the quickest or most efficient way. God, of course, theoretically could have done it differently. Why this messiness? Because it brings good to the world and glory to his name. When God builds his house, he builds it in such a way to emphasize his grace for the world. And this is part of the, the realization that when we see what God has done, there's this unfolding story of grace, gives him glory and shows us his grace. He's building it one brick at a time. And so as we <coughs> look at the house that Ruth builds, literally that's the language here, the matriarchs uh, of the story of the household of God are, are given credit here at the end of the book of Ruth. It says... Um, in verse, <clears throat> verse 11, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together 
built up the house of Israel. God is pleased to give them, thanks Eric, um, this role in the story. That though he is building a house, he is doing so through Leah and Rachel and Ruth. This is the house that Ruth built. And I want to see three unusual ways that God builds his house. Unusual to us, but that show God's glory. Number one would be this. He builds from a house of shame to the house of a name. From the house of shame to the house of a name. Look how this passage begins, verse 11. Then all the people who were together at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathra, be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So we saw last week that there's a courtroom here. Uh, Boaz comes to court. That he grabs ten elders. Now a crowd has gathered around. There's there's women here and and others who are about to to pray uh, over this this uh, this judgment. So. The, there's witnesses. Your witnesses this day. Remember that Boaz, if you don't know the story, Boaz, uh, this redeemer character, has just bought back Ruth and her name, her family name, and restored her, and he will marry her. And the business is done. This is legally approved. And the witnesses say, we're witnesses, and they also then pray. Now, we don't have prayer in our judicial system uh, anymore, but you can, so this is kind of foreign for us. But at the end of the, the court session here, they're, they're offering a blessing. Now, what do they bless? It's so interesting. It's the most interesting prayer. They pray that Ruth will be like three women from Israel's history. Rachel, Leah, and Tamar. Why these three women? Well, all three, there was some kind of shame that God used to establish the name of Israel. Rachel and Leah were daughters of Laban. And uh, if you don't know the Bible story, uh, there's this, this guy named Jacob uh, who goes in search of a wife, and he goes to his uncle Laban, and he's running away from his family. And Rachel and Leah are the daughters of Laban, and he marries the, first, the, the daughters, Leah and Rachel. Leah first, and then Rachel. And it's kind of a complicated story. But Leah, poor Leah, what can we say about Leah? She had a good personality. <laughs> you know what you say about people? Have good, she didn't have the looks. And, um, and the Bible is very clear about that. It says that she had um, weak eyes. It's, it's so sad. It's just, that's what it says about Leah. She had weak eyes. And though she had this shame, she was the unwanted sister the unwanted wife, and, and Laban tricks Jacob into marrying her. But God then blesses her with ten sons who then become the, the tribes of Israel. And Rachel is the other sister. She is beautiful. She is desirable. But she also has shame because she's unable to have children. And that's the source of her shame. And she cries out to the Lord and the Lord eventually gives her two sons that then become the other tribes of Israel. 
All these characters are acting in devious ways. Jacob, his name means deceiver. He's running away from his home where he has dishonored his father and tricked his father. Laban, his uncle, deceives Jacob. Now there's a third woman mentioned here, uh, Tamar. May she be like Tamar. This is another story of shame. You can read about it in Genesis 38. I won't take time to tell this hard story. It's a very hard story to read, Genesis 38. But it's a story similar to Ruth in that this is a story of, the, of Leverite marriage where uh, a woman would lose her husband and she would then have children through the, the husband's brother so that the name would be continued. And in Tamar's story, she's not able to have children because her husband dies and his brother will not, his name is Onan, he will not fulfill this vow. And so Judah, Judah the father of the family, has to be tricked by Tamar into having children for her. And the result of all of this drama is twins. One of them is named Perez, and Perez is now the great, 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 great grandfather eight times of Boaz. That's how we get here. It's a story of shame. I mean, I'm telling you these stories. It sounds like daytime TV. Drama, fighting, arguing, jealousy. Who's having whose baby? Murder. Shame. And from this, this is how God builds His house. From these stories of shame, there arose a name, Yisrael, Israel. The 12 sons that become the 12 tribes that God builds His house in Israel on top of this shame. And the prayer from the women who gather around Ruth and Boaz, they say it's the same. In verse 11, they say, may He be renowned in Bethlehem. Literally, the words there mean this, may a name be called in Bethlehem. And a name does, as we see. Ten names, ten generations that lead to the name of David. This is the house that Ruth builds. It's on shame. Now let's pause and acknowledge something that is not always obvious. The, the Bible is often accused of being a, a patriarchal book. Um, and it does put the authority, responsibility, many of the stories through the eyes of men. But here, I want you to see how it's all about the matriarchy. Jacob and Laban are not even mentioned in the story. Boaz gets mentioned one time. He was the hero, right, of the last chapter. This is about the house. Isn't it interesting that Leah, Rachel, and Ruth are the ones who build the house of Israel? In other words, we don't have to say down with the patriarchy in order to say, let's hear it for the matriarchy. The Bible commends these women of faith for their role in building the house of redemption, not unlike a young blessed virgin who will, though there'll be shame around her name. How is she having this child? She's not married to Joseph yet. But from that shame, this virgin, Mary, we will be called to honor for her role in redemption. Not worship, but honor her role. The main point here is this. God builds His house even amidst the shame of his people. Theoretically, of course, if we think about the, is this the, the best way? 
We, do we ask those kinds of questions? Could God have just scrapped this world? I mean, why didn't He just start over with Adam and Eve? It didn't work out the first time. Let's try this again, and it'll all be up and to the right. It'll all be just this story of, of amazingness. Why bring in sin? Theoretically, this could be more efficient. Couldn't God build a world that would reflect the glory of His name? But He does. How He builds the house is important. He does so in a way that reflects His grace. And He goes into the daytime TV drama and He redeems that. That's where He puts His house. It's, it's from these, this dumpster fire of these stories. All of the deception and the scandal and the heartache and the sin. On that, God builds His house forever. A house for His name. And similarly, it gives us hope because how, which one of us does not have shame? Family shame, personal shame, sinful shame. And when God builds His house, He makes sure to tell us, if you have shame, you're still included. Because it's on that that He builds His house. He specializes in bringing salvation to the shamed. How does God build His house from a house of shame to the house of a name. Perhaps not what we would expect, but it's what he does. Here's a second one. From a house of death to a house of life. From a house of death to a house of life. Verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and became, she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now, the Lord gave her conception. There's, this is significant. It's only the second time um, in, in the whole book of Ruth, where God is seen as actively doing something. The first time is when um, Naomi says she heard that the Lord had given food in, in Bethlehem, in Judah. This is only the second time. Now, of course, we've seen God's been at work through the whole thing. Ruth happens into the field of Boaz. She happens to go where she's supposed to go. And we know the narrator of the story is winking at us. We know. God was in control of that. But this is only the second time that God actively is seen to do something, and He gives her conception. Food, and then fertility, we might say, are the gifts that God shows here. And perhaps this is even miraculous, because Ruth, as we know, has been married for up to 10 years to a guy named Machlon before and had no children. But here, God grants the children. And just like, as, as I said, the story has now moved away from, from Boaz, the Redeemer, to now Ruth, the story now moves from Ruth to Naomi, which is where the story began. Ruth is kind of done in the story. If you read the rest of the passage, it's almost like the child is Naomi's child. Why? Well, I think there's some significant things here. This child is called the Redeemer. Look at verse 14 with me. Then the woman said to Naomi, why, they're talking to Naomi, not to Ruth, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
He's called here the Redeemer, this child, is the Redeemer and the Restorer of life. This word Redeemer we've seen throughout has applied to Boaz. Boaz was the kinsman Redeemer, but here the women say to Naomi, you have a Redeemer. It's this child. And he's also called the Restorer of life to Naomi. Do you remember Naomi's story? All she's experienced is hunger and death and absence. Where is God in the death of my husband, Elimelech? Where is God in the, the death of my sons, Machlon and Chilion? Where is God when I, I have gone away full, but I've come back empty, she says. Don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant. Call me Mara. That means bitter. And this prayer that the women offer to Naomi is a gentle reminder to them. God has not left you empty. He's not left you in death. God gave you Ruth, who they say is better than seven sons. That's the highest praise in Israel, to have seven sons, a complete family line. Ruth is so worthy. See what God has given you. He's given you also a son. His name is Obed. The name is a shortened form of the, of the name Obadiah. Just, just short for that, Obed. Obadiah means servant of Yah, so servant of Yahweh, servant of God, servant of the Lord. So Obed just means servant. Here is the servant. And he will restore your life, your line, your hope. Here at the end of the story, it seemed like, in other words, death would be the end of your line. You thought you put all your hope uh, in Elimelech and Machlon and Chilion, but they're, they're dead now. And so it seemed like there was only going to be death for you, but now a child has given you life. And that's not just the end of this story. It's the end of the story. God restores life after death. Nothing seems more final than death. It's the greatest enemy. It's the last enemy, the Bible says, to be destroyed is death. But there is something greater than death. A defeater of death. A redeemer who is also the resurrection and the life. The restorer of life. Jesus is Obed, the servant of of God, and He is the restorer of life. And because we have Him, if you have Him, there is the restoration of your life after death. The hope that Naomi feels when she looks at this child, that there is a future, there is a life for my name. God intends for us to look and say, when we look at Christ, there is life for us after death. He restores it. This is how God builds His house. He doesn't just scrap everything and say, I'm starting over with new life. God is a restorer of life. It matters how he builds the house. He doesn't just say, I'm done with you. He says, I want to redeem and restore you. And in that, there is a glory to him and there is a grace to us. Do you see that? It matters how he builds the house. And he does so by bringing us from death to life. Why does Naomi get this attention at the end of the book? 
this great ending, this story that has the perfect ending, it really it resolves her individual story. And what, God, what we're about to do, we're going to read the ten names again, uh, the, the line of, of, um, of Boaz that goes all the way to King um, David. Now, there's a huge story there. There's, that's what we would call redemptive history. There's something that God is doing from the beginning to the end of time. There's a huge story here. But God is able to tell that story in the midst of fulfilling Naomi's story. And that is why I think we see Naomi here at the end. This is what's going to happen in Israel, but this is what happens for Naomi. In the midst of a large-scale, redemptive, historical story, there is the story of Naomi, someone who was hungry and empty and then filled, someone who was broken and then mended, someone who was bitter and now is pleasant again, someone who experienced the pains of death and loss and now is given life through a child. So God, though He is bringing all of history under His banner, though He is the, the, God, the schemes of kings, the Scripture says, are in His hands, the very earth and heavens do His bidding, this God cares for this woman. And as an individual, He marks her burdens and he, her cares, and He fulfills them. God is able to do that. He cares for burdens. He cares for your burdens, your emptiness, the Scripture says He knows the very hairs on your head, that you are of great value to Him. It is true that God is doing something beyond you, but it is equally true that what He does includes you. From a house of death to a house of life. Finally, as we close, from the house of strangers to a house of kings. As we close the story, let's remember how it began. This man named Elimelech left his home. Now, we saw there, there's a recalling of a biblical story. Abraham. Abraham was called by God. This is in the book of Genesis. From the land of Ur of the Chaldees, he was a pagan. He did not follow God. God called him and said, I will bless you. I will give you a name. I will give you a family. I will give you a nation. And he says in Genesis 17, by the way, kings will come from you. Kings will come from your body. That's the backdrop of the story. And then in Ruth, how it begins with a guy named Elimelech, he's like the anti-Abraham. He leaves from the promised land, the one that God gives to Abraham's sons. He leaves from that and goes to Moab and he dies and his sons die. And here, with the story of Ruth, we see his daughter-in-law becomes the Abraham figure again. She returns. A foreigner, like Abraham was, and from her body will come kings. See in verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, 
Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. Ten generations to a king. And this is similar to Ruth's story. If you see how Ruth is labeled throughout the book of Ruth, she goes from being a foreigner. Chapter 2, she says to Boaz, when she first meets him, I am a foreigner, no Cree. Then she, then she changes her language. But you have treated me like a shifka. That's a low servant. I've gone from being a foreigner to a servant. Then she calls herself Amma, a maidservant. And then finally here, she is Isha, wife and mother. So Ruth has gone from being a foreigner to being in the line of Israel's kings. Ten generations. What no one in this story could have predicted, that from this family will come David, the great king of Israel. And if we move down the story and we see how this story fits in with the bigger story, we know that David is going to be a significant king. In 2 Samuel 7, this is the promise that God makes to David that his line will go on. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall, who shall come from your body. There's that language again. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Through David, through his body, the, the body of Ruth that leads to the king David, then from David leads to this promise. That God is still building His name through a king. And we cannot miss the significance of the, the beauty of this story. Another son, like Obed, another servant, will be born in Bethlehem. The son of David. The son of Ruth. His name is Jesus Christ, and He's called Christos Christ, the King. And He also is the builder of a great house. Hebrews 3, verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The house that Ruth built, like all houses, is the one that God built. But how does he build it? How does he build it? He is pleased to use Ruth. He is pleased to take those who are caught in shame and give them a name. He is pleased to bring those who have only experienced death into a newness, a restoration of life. And he's pleased to bring those who are strangers and aliens. And by the way, that is all of us who live here at the ends of the earth who are strangers and foreigners to the promises of God. We are not Israelites. We've been brought into this family, and from this line, He brings us into His kingdom. And we are united with Christ, and we have a kingdom with Him. The Scriptures say that we rule in the new heavens and the new earth alongside Him as kings and queens of the earth. It's not just that God builds a house. It's how he builds it. He builds it in such a beautiful way to bring glory to his name and grace to us. And yes, it's a long story. And yes, there are things that, are things that we don't understand and don't see, but 
if we look and see what God is doing, we see that His glory through this story is greater and His grace to us is more evident. Let's pray.